This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. We are pleased to have the Premier of Ontario with us, Kathleen Wynne. Thanks so much for coming in. We appreciate this. Thanks, Scott. And the Very whole, happy to be here. And the whole campaign bus and everything's all over the, the parking lot. The buses are there, yeah. So yeah. I, w- I was asking you, what's it like? People don't know. We see you on TV. We see you on the news. What's it like during the campaign? What are your days like? Really busy. <laughs> there are a lot of people to talk to, a lot of places to get to. It's a big province, and so we are on the bus moving from town to town. You know, we'll end up in uh, Kitchener-Waterloo tonight. We'll go on to London. Um, and it is about talking to as many people as we can, getting their feedback, and making sure that they know what it is we have done and are going to do. Different between this time and last time? Um well, I think we're at a different point in the uh, in the the province's economy. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I ran in the election in 2014, uh, I made a commitment to the people of the province to build the province up because we were still climbing out of the the hole that the uh, economic downturn had left us in. We we have been investing in infrastructure. We've got 235,000 students who are getting free tuition in our colleges and universities, and and our unemployment rate is the lowest it's been in nearly 20 years. So. So we're seeing some success, but what we know is that with the economy growing, not everybody's feeling that, Scott. Mm-hmm. And so that's why our plan is about more care for people, you know, child care, more home care, more support for hospitals. That's the point that we're at in this uh, in this uh, election. Many have thought that you've taken the party too far left, that it's gone right over into NDP territory. A lot of those in the middle feel that they're being left out. What are your thoughts on taking it as far left as you have? Well, you know, my uh, the plan that we're bringing forward, my plan is rooted in my belief that government exists to do the things that people can't do for themselves at a particular point in time. And so, um, you know, in 2018, we have a, an economy that's doing well, but not everybody's able to participate in that. Not everybody's able to feel the benefit of that. And so in 2018, the practical solution solutions to that is to put more care in place for people, the things that they are asking for. And I'm not, I'm not tied to an ideology that says, as the conservatives do, that it's all about business and the free market and that's who we should support. You know, Doug Ford's answer to people feeling concerned and anxious is that we'll just cut corporate taxes and the very wealthiest in the province will do well and everybody else will be okay. And what Andrea Horvath is saying is that actually no government has to do everything. You know, that's what the NDP um, has has always said. And I believe that um, what happens in uh, in government is you have to make practical decisions. That's why I'm a liberal. You have to look at the concerns that people have. You have to look at the problems that people are facing and find the answers that are going to help them. Families, for example, who've got a an elderly loved one, a grandparent or a parent, they need more support. You know, they need some help. And those are the kinds of uh, supports that we're putting in place. What would you say to those that have that would say your party's had 15 years to do this? Why all this now? Well, what I would say to them is that if you look at what we've been doing over that time, we've actually been growing the economy, building the economy, building those supports. I mean, you can look at full-day kindergarten. You can look at the fact, as I said, about uh, uh, free tuition that's in place. Um, Look at the supports, the billions of dollars we've put into home care. There has been huge investment in this province, um, but we know that there's more to be done. But everything that we're putting forward, whether it's child care, more home care, um, those things are all rooted in work that we've been doing over the last number of years. I'm getting a lot of email from uh, people, Premier, who are concerned about 
the debt, how you how you're going to service the debt as well as pay for all of this uh, moving forward. And I, I get that, you know, um, what I what I hear from people is that they they really do need more support. That's what uh, the care plan is about. We are very we're being very careful, Scott, in terms of looking at how we're managing those finances. A lot of the uh, the debt that the province is carrying is about investing in infrastructure. It's long term investments that are going to benefit uh, people for generations to come. But if we don't invest in people, if we don't make those investments now to make sure that uh, kids have the child care that they need, that uh, families can look after their, uh, their elderly loved ones, that everyone, no matter what the family income is, can get post-secondary. If we don't make those investments now, we will pay later. And so that's why these investments are so important and the investment in care is so important right now. A new poll uh, I'm reading from a, a Global News article, uh, Ipsos, 7 in 10 Ontarians think carbon taxes are just a tax grab and they don't actually tackle climate change. 7 out of 10. Well, here's so here's the thing um, that... You know, the the plan that we've got working right now in Ontario, what we did was we linked up our uh, our carbon market to Quebec and to California, and we're reducing pollution. That's what that's what our plan is about. We shut down all the coal-fired plants, Scott, and that removed megatons of, uh, of pollution from the air. We've got clean air. We don't have smog days in Ontario anymore. Kids with asthma are able to breathe more freely. So that's the first part. The second part is that all of the all of the revenue that comes in from uh, from the uh, the cap and trade plan, the reduction of pollution, that all goes back out. It goes to companies to invest in technology. It goes to people to invest in uh, their own homes, to change the windows, to change their roofs, so that they have a, a smaller footprint in terms of uh, pollution. And that brings that brings the pollution down in the province. So so. We're doing our part as a province to reduce that pollution in the air because everyone can see the impacts of uh, climate change. Everyone can see the flooding, can see the fires. And so we need to do our part to reduce that pollution. And that's what our plan is doing. Many have said on this show that they can't afford a wind government anymore. It's just cost them too much. Everything has just gone up. Uh, what have you, electricity, energy. How can we... How can we or, or you put forth uh, uh, a list of promises similar to the NDP and convince Ontarians that there's fiscal responsibility behind this? Well, there's a big difference between what we're saying and what the NDP is saying. And that, uh, that difference is that our plan, you know, uh, those, those students who are in post-secondary already because of free tuition, the kids across the province who are getting free prescription medication, we have... We've costed out our plan. We know how it can be implemented, and part of it has already uh, been implemented. The NDP have put forward a, a plan that has a big mistake in it, Scott. You know, they've they've made assumptions about uh, about uh, our uh, fiscal situation that are just not accurate. They've missed a whole they've missed a whole year of investments, and they've uh, they basically can, have can, put forward how a can plan anybody, that, how can that anybody doesn't work. How can anybody believe any of those numbers? Because nobody knows what it's like until they actually get in government, especially if you're using different accounting practices than the Auditor General and the Financial Accountability Office. Well, so do you think, do you think, the NDP, these, do you think these numbers just go over everybody's head? Well, I think it's more big, about attitude than numbers at well, this I point? Well, I think the big numbers are, yeah, I think they're hard for us all to get our, 
mind wrapped around. But the fact is that the plan that the NDP has put forward doesn't take into account programs like um, uh, $170 million for apprenticeships. You know, they basically said, we're not going to do that. And they made that intentional decision. And and so there's a big difference between what they're saying and what we're saying. The plan that they're putting forward actually can't be implemented the way they say it can. And, you know, even the, the financial accountability officer, the attorney, uh, the, um, sorry, the auditor general, they've both said that what we've said is doable. You know, it's uh, it's practical. It's doable. There are didn't the there financial accountability office say that it was unsustainable for any length of time? The 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 financial accountability officer looked at what we uh, what we have put forward, said that it is prudent, that it is possible to to be implemented. There are accounting differences with the auditor general. Mm-hmm. You know, there are mm-hmm. professional accountants who have had an ongoing dispute, but there's nothing that we have put forward that isn't clear and open. What the NDP have said is that there are certain things we're going to cut, and they haven't been upfront with people about what those. Uh, what those programs are. I think they, they've made a mistake. I think that they need to look at the numbers again. But there is a big difference at this point between what they're putting forward and what we're putting forward. Fundamentally, Scott, what we've said is um, we understand that uh, although we've balanced the budget, there's a big need that people are uh, are feeling right now. And that's why we have an agenda that puts more care in place. That's why our plan has more care for people, whether it's supports for mental health, whether it's supports for hospitals, you know, those are all rooted in things we've already been doing, but we need to take the next steps. Premier Kathleen Wynne has been with us, Premier of Ontario. Thank you for stopping by. I know time is tight. You're in and out here and all over the province, but thank you so much for spending the time. We appreciate it. Thanks this. for having me, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Let's bring in, uh, oh, hang on a sec. Let's bring in Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, consumer affairs critic, analyst, gasbuddy.com. Dan, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. It's better than talking to my friends in uh, Texas, which I just finished with. They're getting ready for a hurricane or a tropical storm down there right now. Oh, man. Uh, well, so uh, that could affect prices as well, I'm guessing. Well, down there it will, but so good to be back home. <laughs> so your thoughts on 7 in 10 Ontarians think carbon taxes are just a tax grab. According to an Ipsos poll, they don't think it's worth it. Well, I think they're right, given that they're paying so much else in taxes. Uh, look, uh, a, a quick rough calculation of the amount of money the Ontario government makes alone in a month like this where gasoline prices are 25 to 27 cents a litre higher. Remember, they put on an 8% uh, additional tax back in 2010 uh, to turn the 6% GST into the 13% HST. Works out to about 2 cents times 1.6 billion, and that's uh, 1.2 billion litres of gasoline. So, you know, by my calculation, that's roughly about a $25 million windfall that... uh, uh, they could certainly use for other purposes, but uh, the 4.5 cent a liter cap and trade that you're paying today sounds to me like uh, simply a way of taking money and putting it somewhere else towards certain uh, goals, which might have uh, on the surface a great, wonderful promise of future opportunities. But frankly, I think it's uh, it's lost on most uh, drivers and certainly on most consumers when they recognize that the uh, the extravagant costs of many of these green programs, not just for gasoline, but for hydro, are simply unaffordable. Are, are, are our opinions on, uh, on carbon taxes changing? Well, I think they are. Uh, if only now people are starting to see that it's, it's nice to talk about these things, and it's, you know, it may be uh, vogue to be on the right side of uh, these kind of debates these days. But when it comes down to the hard 
you know, fact of how much it's going to cost you, I think many people are starting to take a bit of a you know step backwards. And they have British Columbia as a good example, the first one that said, hey, guess what? We're going to have a carbon tax. It's about eight cents a liter, and it's revenue neutral. Uh, no, it isn't. It's actually going back into government coffers for other pet projects, and I think people have every reason to be very skeptical, especially given that uh, bending yourselves over backwards or you know into pretzels as far as consumers are concerned is leading to the prospect of many manufacturers leaving our jurisdictions in favor of other locations while at the same time costing us several hundred dollars more a year and not getting any oil delivered that would uh, bring down the uh, the obviously the cost of of uh, fuel if only it would uh, allow the Canadian dollar to increase in its value so you know i think canadians are saying uh, you know uh, we gave away the farm and you're giving us a couple of beans that aren't going to grow into anything uh, wh- what do you do if you're someone who's conscious of the environment and you're concerned that uh, if governments are doing enough uh, and yet you see this money that 7 in 10 think is just a tax grab? Um, again, people become very cynical when it comes to environmental issues. Well, you know, short of, you know, berating people, uh, trying to insult them, uh, I think the reality is that you're going to have to find some kind of a balance. And that is really, I think everyone is on board with pollution. Uh, I'm not so sure that the everyone is convinced that, uh, you know, what Canada does in terms of uh, increasing its carbon taxes is going to have the effect uh, of reducing global consumption. We can all go out and buy electric cars, assuming we can get them, but another nation has to use fossil fuels to build them, to extract them, and to poison their own atmosphere in order to get it done. At the end of the day, uh, there really isn't uh, much of an advance. We might be offloading our responsibility to, onto someone else, but I think we need to have a much deeper and more serious discussion about this as opposed to what we've seen today. Those who are bringing forth legitimate questions as to why we need to do this, and those now, a much greater number, who are now having to pay for this, are rightly and legitimately, legitimately asking questions. And, uh, uh, you know, I think we need to hear from people who don't have any skin in the game. In other words, people who are not funded by or directly have a, a pecuniary interest uh, in seeing uh, these kind of taxes, which somehow come back to them. I'd like to hear more objectively from, from consumers, and I think we're going to hear it a lot come June 7th. So you think the, the tide is changing here? Well, I sense it. Uh, I, I, on things like carbon taxes. I, I mean, again, so if, if, if you yeah. disagree with carbon taxes, does that mean you're anti-environment? Yeah, and I think that's unfair. Scott, that's, that's disingenuous. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I sat as a liberal in 2008 uh, during an election where we tried to make the point about the green shift, but hard to do when in one fell swoop in one evening we saw a 12 cent a liter increase. Look, these things are going to happen. We will eventually wean ourselves away from a, a significant amount of use of fossil fuels. But at the same time, let's not denigrate what has given us our standard of living. And let's understand and, and try to get the science correct. Uh, I believe in taking on pollution. I don't believe that CO2 is a pollutant. Now, maybe the curriculum in school has changed. And I think there is probably a reason to give some thought to why that is the case. But there's no such thing as sci- absolute science. Uh, many people are, are, of course, debating this issue back and forth. I, for one, do not believe carbon dioxide to be a pollutant, and I think it's disingenuous for people to suggest that. If you want to go after NOx and SOx and uh, mercury and other things, I'm with you. Let's do that, and let's continue down that road. But at the same time, let's not, uh, let's not try to uh, fudge the, uh, the facts in order to sustain or to uh, impose unnecessary taxes on people who are right now in Canada finding unaffordability is becoming an increasing concern. So where, where are the prices going this summer for gasoline, and what is the reasoning for that? Oh, Scott, I've uh, done enough interviews on this now, but uh, the reality is that 
uh, we are seeing the full effects of uh, the world, uh, you know, uh, bringing supply of oil and demand in right back into balance, right yeah. back where we were back in 2013, 2014, yep. before OPEC began its foolish decision to try to undercut U.S. shale producers. You know, Dan, we've talked about this a million times. Why can't we see this coming? And you talked about this a couple of years ago when they started flooding the market, blah, 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 blah. Can't we, can't we see this coming? We can, and we have ways of mitigating it. And I think one of them is, oh my goodness, let's get our, if the world wants more Canadian oil, why in goodness name are we not selling it? The fact that we're not selling it, let me be really clear with people who are, you know, not nodding their heads right now. Dollar twenty-eight to buy a Canadian for one. It takes a dollar twenty-eight to buy one U.S. dollar. That's costing you and I sixteen cents a liter right from the get-go. Back in the days when we had hundred-dollar and hundred twenty and hundred thirty-dollar oil, the Canadian dollar was on par or very close to the U.S. greenback. It shielded us against a fifteen-cent hit. We're paying that fifteen to sixteen cents a liter today. In other words, if we sold all our oil, we got it to markets. We'd be in a situation today uh, where the Canadian, the value of our oil would be $70 a barrel, not 50 and we'd be looking at a Canadian dollar that can shield consumers up to $0.15 cents a litre. Forget the taxes, because I think that's another area that we need to talk about. The fact is, you know, I, as a member of Parliament, I brought in two tax relief measures, both in 2000 and 2002, in a GST rebate. There's no point in governments collecting a windfall of money at a time when people are finding it difficult to make ends meet. Those are two very important steps to mitigating the price for consumers. Dan McTagg has been with us, former Liberal MP, consumer gas critic, consumer affairs critic, and analyst, gasbuddy.com. Dan, your ear must be just the size of your hand now from talking about all this stuff. It, it is, but I'm, uh, it's always a pleasure to be here with you, Scott. Thanks, as always. Much appreciated, Dan. Take care, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. With the rise out of third place for the NDP, both the PC Party and the uh, PC Party and the Liberals have turned their attention to Horvath and her party. Uh, why was she not targeted prior to all of this? Let's listen to both uh, Premier Wynne and uh, Andrea Horvath when some are talking about a coalition government. Here's the Premier. I can't tell you what the uh, what the end result of the election is going to be. All I know is that we're on day five and we're going to keep working as hard as we can in every riding across this province to bring that plan forward and to connect with people uh, across Ontario. Here's what Andrea Horvath had to say about a coalition. You know, people have told me that they are tired of Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals. People have told me that they have no confidence, no confidence whatsoever, that Kathleen Wynne and the Liberals are going to do what they say or fix what they've broken. And so, yes, I am unequivocally saying I have no interest in partnering up with that party. All right. <laughs> wow. Uh, let's bring in Jason Roy, PhD, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Director, Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy, Wilford Laurier University. Jason is on the line with us now. Jason, thanks for taking the time to join us. We appreciate this. No problem. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. So what's changed here in the last little while? Uh, many said that they didn't really, or Andrea Horvath wasn't resonating. What's changed now? Well, I, I mean, I, I think in, in my in my view, it's that first uh, leaders debate. So we actually see something uh, different, perhaps, from the NDP, from Horvath, who is attracting some voters, some interest, some attention. Uh, we also have a series of polls that came out just just following that first debate, um, uh, and we start to see some momentum on the side of the NDP uh, that some are suggesting could could lead into a, a potential second place, or in fact, is currently in a second place position, uh, albeit still quite a ways behind the PC. 
So uh, the debate started things off. Is this about Andrea Horvath gaining momentum or is this about Kathleen Wynne losing it? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting election in the sense that I I, I suspect there's a great number of people that are voting uh, not necessarily for a party, but rather to block a different party. Uh, And that could go in either either two directions. Uh, I think what the NDP is trying to do is set themselves up as a national alternative um, to those who, uh, for whatever reason, are just simply opposed to a PC government led under Ford or led by Ford. Uh, and perhaps they're in, in some ways trying to cash in on some of the discontent towards uh, you know, the 15 years of, of provincial liberal government uh, and the, the largely uh, low popularity of, of win. If voters don't like the Liberals, what are the NDP offering them that is more attractive? A new poll out saying 7 in 10 Ontarians think the carbon taxes are just a tax grab. If people are tired of Wynne taking the Liberals too far to the left, why would they choose Andrea Horvath? You know, in a sense, you might have had that at the beginning of your question. It may just be that it's not Wynne. Uh, and, that, and that could be it could be something as simple as that. Um, you know, the, the NDP has, you know, has their platform out. They're coming forward with, with what they can do. Uh, they're also, as we saw repeatedly in that first debate, trying to offer a, a positive message. It's, it's, it's not that you have to choose between, as, as I'm, I'm paraphrasing this, but between bad and worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a third party option that is viable. That's one big thing is convincing voters that they are a viable party to form a government. Uh, and it's, it has more hope. It's a, it's a party offering policies and uh, platform that is based on trying to help everyone in Ontario. Uh, has the Liberal Party planned to to take their party to the left and pretty much cut the NDP off at the pass? Has that worked for the Liberals? It seems that we now live in a world of extremes where it's it's the edges that are getting more attention than the middle. Was it worth their party to go more left and, and, and uh, leave the middle behind, per se? Yeah, I, I don't know that I completely agree that they have left the middle behind. Uh, I mean, typically in Ontario and, and elsewhere in Canada, it's that middle voter, uh, the, the people that fit right in the middle of that spectrum, that tend to be the largest group. Um, the, the question is, is can you go over into the other territories, be it to the left or the right of that center group, uh, without losing that majority of people in the center? Uh, and part of that is, is a calculation based on how far off are these other parties. So, for example, you think the PCs are quite a ways off center towards the right, um, you know, smaller government, less taxes, etc., uh, then maybe that gives the Liberals some room to, to move further to the left to try to challenge the NDP directly. Um, However, I suppose ultimately you run this this um, you know this, this potential danger that you end up splitting the vote because, as you suggested, there may be some difficulties identifying the differences between what the NDP are offering and what the Liberals are offering in this election. Uh, there was chatter this morning about a coalition government. Um, uh, Wynne said, as you heard in the clip, that it's too early to talk about that. Uh, Andrea Horvath saying she basically doesn't want anything to do with the Liberals. Would it be wise for the NDP to attach themselves to the Liberal wagon at this point? Yeah, no, I, I think I think absolutely not at this point. It's way too early on. And nobody wants to come in saying that we were, we're running a campaign to be second place or to be able to form a coalition. I think all parties have to be running uh, to win this election. Um, and in doing so, uh, it, it creates this, this question, this hesitation. I mean, in, in, in my opinion, the, the NDP's greatest challenge is convincing people in Ontario that they're ready to form the government. Uh, Bob Ray, there's a long shadow here that, that tends to uh, cause challenges um, for their campaigns and for their electability. What we're seeing in, uh, already today from the Liberals uh, and, and others that have begun to discuss this 
is questioning um, the economic um, skill set or, or whether or not they can they can even put forward a, a valid budget, accusing, as the uh, Liberals came out today, the NDP of having a $5.7 billion uh, mistake, as they call it. And again, what, what I think they're attempting to do here is to try to dissuade voters from considering them as a viable party, with, of course, the, the alternative being to vote, vote for the Liberals. So do voters see the NDP as more fiscally responsible than the Conservatives? Or sorry, than uh, no, the Liberals? I, more, fiscally, uh, more fiscally responsible than the Liberals, sorry. I, I mean, I, I think what, what's happened is I think many voters see the NDP as being unable to manage the budget. Mm-hmm. The economic uh, side of things typically is where they have challenges, uh, mm-hmm. where people are at least perceive them to have challenges. And I think that's what uh, we start to see today with the Liberal campaign, trying to prime that issue. The idea is that can we trust these folks to manage our money? Do they have the skill set? Do they have the experience? Do they have the, the personnel behind them to do so? And of course, one way to make that a, a prominent issue and to gain this, this media attention and, and start to place that, 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 that doubt in, in voters' minds is just already that there's a huge mistake uh, in the budget that they just put forward from the platform uh, that came out this, this past couple of days. Uh, can we talk numbers? I mean, do people want to really talk about numbers? Lots are saying this isn't costed out, that's not costed out. Is, does that mean anything to, Ontarian, to, to Ontario yeah. voters? I'll, I'll use the example of, of the Hydro One CEO and the $6 million man, as Ford calls him. And there was chatter at the beginning that, you know, we're going to get rid of him, but then it was going to cost you more money to get rid of him than it would be to keep him. Does that really resonate with Ontarians, or is it just the fact that someone's even questioning this they like the change in attitude. Well, I, I mean, Scott. So I, I, I teach statistics as part of my as part of my research uh, in, in teaching at university, and I can tell you the numbers that are coming out are are quote unquote correct, but they're, they're manipulated. They're, the way you treat certain things, the way you cost certain things, the estimates you have on four year versus two year versus eight years, uh, all of these different assumptions that are going into this, I think. Uh, leaves the parties one in a position where they can justify and say, "Look, this is costed correctly. You've just misunderstood or mis mis uh, or, you know, misread how we've interpreted this." Whereas the other party is justified in saying, "Well, no. If you've done it this way, it's it's not correct." Uh, do the average does the average voter do people pay attention to this? Maybe, maybe in the sense that it it, it primes the idea of the importance of the economy. Uh, I know that the liberals would like people to, uh, I, I at least I believe they would. Uh, to look at them as being the experience, um, that they have the personnel to do so, they've, they've had experience running the budget. Now, in some cases, that can backfire because there are those who are questioning whether they've mismanaged the economy for the last uh, last bit of time. Uh, you've got the uh, the PC party who's coming out, who are making some fairly substantial promises, uh, including a new number of cuts and, and benefits to families of, of all sorts of groups, in fact, not just families, but, but all different groups of Ontario. But yet you don't have any sort of cost of platform that's come out as of yet. Uh, and again, that's being highlighted. How are you going to do this? Efficiencies is, is, is one way to perhaps do it, but whether or not you're going to be able to get uh, that much money through efficiencies is, is, is a big question mark. Uh, and then you have the NDP, I think, trying to come forward to show that they have a plan in place. Here's the policy. Here's what they want to, to do, and here's how they're going to do it. But again, you already have, uh, you know, right off the Liberals trying to come out uh, and question whether or not they've, they've costed this correctly. Have they made mistakes? Again, trying to prime this idea that they're, they're not the best party to manage, uh, manage the budget, manage your money. How can you, if you're the Liberals, how can you preach numbers and the costing of things when your accounting is different than the Auditor General's or the Financial Accountability Office's? Well, and, and that's where this can backfire for the Liberals. I mean, that's a point that's been, been highlighted already today is, is, you know, the whole question is how can the, the Liberals and, uh, with a straight face come forward and question this? Um, and that's, that sort of, uh, you know, I suspect is going to play out a bit more, which, 
again, uh, you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting position or, or potential strategy if you think from the, the PCs. The more that the Liberals and the NDP can draw voters away from one another, the greater the chances are of the Progressive Conservatives actually winning this election. So, in some sense, they should be almost happy to step back and let these two, uh, you know, sort of play this out. Uh, in so much as it could lead to a split in the vote, in which case this this other party, the PCs, end up forming a uh, you know a much larger uh, share of the vote than they they might, might so, otherwise. So why do you think people are? And you talked about uh, the, the debate and such, but what do you think from policy standpoint? From policy standpoint, is attracting voters to the NDP? Is it a fear of Ford? Uh, yeah, and I don't know that it's really policy. I mean, we, we, we may be mis, uh, mistaken to think that lots of, you know, outside of, a, of maybe a small group are really focusing on the policies. It's, it's, it's the idea of, in simple terms, what, what are you going to do for me? What are you promising? And can I trust you to do that? Do I believe you? Uh, and then you've got this dislike. I mean, this is, this is an interesting election because Wynne is certainly uh, not a popular uh, premier. That's, that's numerous polls have demonstrated this, public opinion polls. Uh, Ford has a large group of supporters, but uh, I'd suggest an equally large, maybe even larger group of those who question whether or not uh, he's most qualified to be, to be, to be running, this, uh, running this province. Uh, and then you have Horvath, who's a, again, they have policies in place, but they've had this question mark of experience and this, this, this history going back to the, the, you know, Bob Ray and the NDP uh, and their time in power and, and what that meant for Ontario. And so, I mean, all three parties, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating election. And from my perspective, as to how do people decide their vote? Uh, how do people, when they, when they enter that, that, that voting booth, how do they actually decide who to cast their ballot for? And are they actually casting a ballot for somebody or casting it against somebody? And I think the latter is going to be prominent in a lot of voters' minds. Uh, Andrea Horvath has been very open and honest about costing her programs and saying that sh- that she won't hesitate to raise taxes and and make some donate more. I guess is is the phrase that uh, that she has put forward. Why can't she sell all the great stuff that the Liberals are going to give us and then do it with fiscal responsibility? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's the question is that do you believe that they can do it? Do they have the experience to do so? Have they demonstrated that they can do this? And I mean, again, when you see some of these numbers coming out, I think that's that's what people are questioning is how, how do you do it? And the concern, of course, that you go too far to the other extreme with social programs and social spending, that uh, you end up in a position where the, the province is, is just fiscally in a, a disastrous state. So how does Andrea Horvath cash in on this? Uh, you know what, I have to say, I think she should be doing what she's doing, and that is trying to present a different message, one of, of, of a positive campaign, not telling us, uh, although again, it's hard today, she's being pulled into this a bit, uh, telling us what they're going to do and why they're the best to do so, not the ideas as she's used as the line before, that you don't have to choose between bad and worse, that here's another option, uh, to present this positive message that then is, is backed up with uh, what seems to be a plausible outline as to how you're going to uh, follow through with these promises and be able to afford these promises. So it, as much as they can, I think trying to stay on message and keep it, keep it positive about the NDP, not all of this other stuff that's happening, uh, is probably the best strategy. Uh, why do you not think that she had more momentum prior to the debate? Uh, in some ways, it's recognition. I mean, although she has been the leader for some time, I don't know that the NDP... Well, and not only that, and not only that, sorry to interrupt, but when you talk yeah. about recognition, she's the most popular leader and has been right. for quite a while. I mean, no matter what, how, how, how her party's polling. So, I mean, are, is it really people don't know who she is? Because everyone sorry, seems to like her. Yeah, let me rephrase that. Recognition as a viable party to form the government. Maybe that's a better way to put it. I mean, we, you know, we place so much emphasis on the party leaders. Uh, the idea here is that, in fact, there's very few individuals who actually vote 
in the riding of the party leader. It's it's the local candidate and what have you. And I think that's perhaps been the issue is that do is there faith in the NDP as being in a position where they can form a government uh, that they have the experience, they have the personnel, they have the the members who could then uh, lead this province. Um, and and although she may be the most like of the of the three leaders, uh, if it's not viewed as a viable option. Uh, then it, it doesn't do much good, even though she is, is perhaps the most popular. How are the Liberals uh, digesting these uh, poll numbers today that Horbath has uh, has closed the gap? Yeah, so, I mean, on, on the sense of polls, uh, I mean, of, of course, you can start to see already, I think, prime in this idea of uh, fiscal uh, or questionable finances and budgeting, and, and the, the term budget mistake has been used repeatedly. So I suspect that's part of it. Start to prime this idea is that do you believe that they can do this? Um, polling numbers are, are an interesting, uh, you know, interesting thing. I, I study polls as well as, as one of my main areas of, of interest. Um, we have to keep in mind uh, there's so many things happening here. The, the numbers that we're seeing are early on. For the most part, they're decided voters. So there's still this large portion of the population, in some estimates as many as 40%, who are still undecided. So what we're seeing now, there's still this 40% of the population in play, and that's, that, I suspect, is largely where the, the parties want to focus, because their base supporters, we can assume, are, are going to be hard swayed to move over to them, the other parties. But it's these undecided, it's, it's this big core that really matters. The second thing to keep in mind is that where are these numbers coming from? So the NDP's numbers are showing, uh, showing an increase at the aggregate level. But they're not necessarily showing that much of a change at the riding level in terms of the projected seat share uh, that each party will gain. And part of the problem is that you can increase in your popularity, increase in your support. But if you've already won that riding, then it's, it's, it's somewhat uh, irrelevant if you end up increasing that support in that riding even more because you've already won it. Uh, and that's, again, the question where it becomes under our electoral system. Uh, somewhat of a challenge to try to figure all of this out. How does it play out? What does the change of two or three percentage points for any party in either direction actually mean? And that then, I guess the answer to it becomes is where is that, that support coming from? Uh, were they already ahead behind and which, which party is going to benefit from the shift in that party, uh, party preference? Should we be surprised about what is happening with, with the NDP at this stage of the election, considering, you know, we're like basically a week into this uh, campaign, uh, considering where we've been in the past? I mean, as things start to shake down, wasn't it obvious that, Perhaps wind would fall and Andrew Horvath would start to go up. Uh, yeah, possibly. I mean, although I think some people might be surprised to know we're only actually a week into this this election campaign. It, it does feel longer than that, doesn't it? <laughs> sure does. That's right. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's controlling the media cycle, controlling the message. Uh, we start to see a small uptick in uh, in the NDP numbers, and therefore you start to see a shift from some of the other parties. Uh, we saw this in the Northern uh, Leaders debate with Ford coming out the NDP directly. Uh, and you start to see this now with the Liberals trying to focus their attention uh, to, to draw some question about uh, NDP viability. Uh, you know, does it stick? Does it resonate with voters? It's, it's hard to say. It largely depend on, on you know how the next few days uh, play out. Um, in my view, these these campaign 28 days could be a real long time, uh, and the number of things that could evolve over that 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 you know that period of time. Even some of the comments uh, that that have been played out with Ford from the from the Northern debate. Uh, again, trying to paint it as perhaps not uh, open to immigration, um, et cetera. I mean, this is all stuff that's going to potentially take on uh, take on a whole different direction. The other thing I think to keep in mind is, is that for many voters, they're not necessarily paying attention like some of us might be at this point in the campaign. It's going to be that last week where you kind of check in and get that uh, quote unquote the Coles note sort of so to speak uh, summary of what's what's happened, and then and then make the decision at that point as well. So. 
I mean, it, you know, even though it's uh, three and a half weeks left, I mean, there's, there's still any number of things that could happen. So what can Andrea Horvath do to convince everybody that she does have the fiscal responsibility to run government? She certainly has everyone's attention now. Yeah, I, I think show, show the team. Who do you have in place? How can you do this? Can you justify it? I mean, she's put forward this budget. She's, she started already with questioning the Liberals um, and, 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 you know, how could they possibly talk about budget mistakes, quote-unquote, arguing that they've just assessed it differently, which is, which is uh, I suspect, the case. Um, but demonstrate to Ontario that there's a team in place, there's a plan in place, and that uh, this is something that they can certainly succeed at and are uh, unquestionably a, a viable option to form uh, the next Ontario government. How do the PCs react to this information and Andrea doing well now, or coming up strong, I guess? Well, it, you know, it's an interesting, interesting dynamic for the PCs to, to see where the support, I mean, if they're pulling support from the Liberals, um, then the PCs don't have a whole lot of, of concern because it's, uh, you know, if you let those two parties sort of battle this out, I think it benefits the PC largely. This split vote, uh, and you'll start to hear discussions, I'm sure, of strategic voting, and in fact, they've begun already. Uh, can they, you know, can they split the vote in writings where they, the PCs may not have been uh, the first place party by any means, but because of the split, the third place party ends up actually winning. So in, in some sense, I mean, they certainly have to protect what they have. They're certainly uh, uh, doing battle in the north, trying to win a few seats there. But uh, to some extent, letting the Liberals and the NDP fight this out um, and split the vote mm. it could be in, you know, part of their best interest. Jason Roy has been with us, PhD Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Director, Laurier Institute for the Study of Public Opinion and Policy, Wilfrid Laurier University. Jason, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. A new fissure has opened on Hawaii's Kilauea volcano uh, with lava piling up as high as a four-story building. Uh, When this first started, it was um, a novelty and kind of amusement at the beginning. Uh, However, then it started to progress and progress and and eventually start taking out uh, homes and neighborhoods. Uh, What has changed now? We're going to get an update. First, we're going to play you two clips from residents uh, in the area. True, when you move to Hawaii, you know that you're going to be signing up for volcanoes, like if you move to California, earthquakes or Texas, tornadoes, but just don't ever expect it to happen right here. So we'll have hope and have faith. It's like creation and recreation and, you know, part of it's a little bit of destruction and devastation at the same time for people who want to put down their roots in its path. All right, let's bring in Ariana Soldati, expert with the American Geophysical Union, currently pursuing her PhD at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri, and on the line with us now. Ariana, thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, a pleasure. Thank you for having me in your show. So uh, how has the attitude of this volcano changed since this first uh, became a new story? It seemed at the beginning... Uh, there, there was more a novelty approach than there was uh, concern. Now, obviously, there's lots of concern. How has this developed? Well, the thing is that uh, Hawaii is one of those volcanoes that has eruptions very frequently, and most of them are beautiful lava flows. They end up in the ocean. They do not cause any damage. In fact, they expand our territory. So they're a big attraction for, for tourists and do not especially pose a threat. 
However, with the current eruption, it appears that um, all the new fissures are forming actually inside a neighborhood. Uh, and unfortunately, this is not completely unusual for um, for the volcano if we look at it more from a historical perspective, say if we go back you know, more than than the last few years, but about the last century, this has happened before. Um, and and this eruption is, is bigger than other ones that we've experienced in, in recent years, and, um, and it does not appear that it will stop anytime soon. So there is a lot of concern for people living in the area that are being evacuated, and, and unfortunately their, their homes are still very much um, at risk right now. Uh, volcanoes in Hawaii, how uh, how many of them are, when there are eruptions, do they appear as these fissures? It seems like these fissures or these cracks are appearing um, almost anywhere. I guess those that, uh, of us that don't know a lot about volcanic activity, you know, think the old, uh, you know, the old story where, you know, at the very top it blows and, and, and lava spews out of the top and rolls down a mountainside. Talk a little bit uh, about the difference between that typical type of eruption and what we're seeing here with fissures. Right. So this is what people always picture in their mind. You know, you say volcano and everybody thinks this cone with a crater on top and lava just comes out of there. Uh, but the reality is that the magma that is, is underneath the volcano in the magma chamber tries to come up and it tries to take the easiest path. So sometimes that is not going all the way up directly into the, the central crater, but rather opening a crack at a lower altitude on the flanks of the volcano. And this is what is happening right now. Um, a lot of volcanic eruptions actually start on the flank with longer fissures, and then as the eruption progresses, um, the eruption becomes concentrated into, um, into circular vents because part of the fissure closes naturally after the, the lava comes out and, and cools down and, and becomes solid. Uh, but, you know, broadly speaking, it is not unusual to have fissures and they form along an area that is um, more weak. And this just depends on, on the structure of the entire volcano. And in fact, on Kilauea, there is what we call the East Rift Zone. And this is the area where, where the current eruption is, is developing, opening new fissures. So it's an area where historically there have been many, many fissures opening. And every time the lava comes up, it, it doesn't necessarily reuse a fissure that's already there. It opens a new one because sometimes that's just easier to do. How is is this type of activity more dangerous than an eruption at the cone? It seems that this is more unpredictable as far as location. Um, right. Well, the, the danger is that, you know, of course, there's there's no one who is currently living at the top of the volcano because it's a, it's a national park, um, whereas at a lower altitude, yes, we have people, we have neighborhoods. And so um, the, the danger is, is closer. It's already happening in a, in a center that's, that's inhabited, unfortunately. Uh, I wouldn't say it's more unpredictable, uh, but this eruption seems to be uh, stronger than others we've had in the, in the recent past. So, for example, we've seen that um, at the top with the lava lake, the level has been dropping uh, by a few meters every day. Um, just because you know the magma is coming out from from lower down on the on the flank of the volcano, and this is causing a lot of of rock falls inside the crater, and that is in turn 
causing bigger explosions. So um, it's an eruption that's developing further than the usual ones we see where we only have a little lava flow and then it's it's over pretty soon. Um, this one is a, is a bigger one. Ariana, when this eruption started, did you foresee this happening? Did you know that this was going to take this long, or did you just think it was a normal eruption that happens there? there you know, this happens from time to time, and then people go about their lives. Uh, how is this one different? How much more dangerous is this? Um, well, this one, I would say it's more dangerous because of a couple of reasons. The first one is, is the location. It's happening, you know, directly um, where people live. And, and the other one is that with the, with the crater um, up at the top emptying so much and the rock falls and the explosive activity, there's a lot of ash that's being generated, and that itself is, is a potential danger. You know, we have volcanic bombs. Those are big blocks of, of rock that are being ejected out and those can, can travel quite far and, and potentially uh, pose a danger to people. And when it started, we couldn't really say, you know, for how long it was going to go. Even now, we are not able to say this is going to go for, say, another week or, or another month. We can only monitor the way the, the eruption is, is developing. Uh, for sure, you know, the, the strong earthquakes that have been associated with the, with the eruption, as well um, with the lowering of, of the level of the lake, there, there are two big signs that um, this is not a weak eruption and it's not, we do not see any sign that it's winding down. So we, for the time being, we can expect it to continue possibly with new fissures opening up and, and more lava and more uh, pyroclastics. So that's all the ash and, and volcanic bombs, so the bigger blocks um, coming out. But the best thing we can do for now is just monitoring the situation and making sure to uh, communicate with the civil protection and making sure that um, people are evacuated if it, it's necessary and, and keep staying in an area that is safe. Uh, last week, there was chatter that that scientists were concerned about an explosion and a, and a large eruption. This one, obviously, much small, uh, much slower, I guess, in, in how it reacts. Uh, how concerned are you, or are scientists, that this could be a traditional explosion? Uh, it, it it could happen. I'm quite concerned, honestly. Um, it's 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 very hard. Um, it's very hard to tell, but but we do see the the eruption progressing, and it is possible that that we will have other big explosions and bigger ones that we've seen so far. Historically, the volcano has done this already in the past. We can say that from from the deposits that we have studied from historical eruptions. Um, so it is something to, to be concerned of right now, and, and the best thing for, for everybody is to follow the directions that they're given as far as areas that are or are not safe to go into, um, and, and, and just, you know, um, try, try to be safe. How dangerous are these fissures? You see people that appear to be relatively close to them. What about fumes? What about air quality there? Um, that is another possible concern. So we have um, noticed enhanced emissions uh, of um, 
sulfur dioxide, so that's a gas that's commonly produced by volcanoes, and it's not something you want to, to breathe. It's something that will irritate your um, your nose and throat, so um, you, you should definitely not be close up there. The other thing with fissures, of course, is that the lava is not coming out in a gentle fa- fashion. We're having um, big uh, lava fountains, so they they go up fairly fairly tall and material that, that comes down comes down very fast and is still very hard um, and so you really do not want to be close by unless you know you're an expert working there and wearing all the appropriate gear and, and protection. Uh, I do hope that some of the pictures that we are seeing uh, right now have been taken with uh, really powerful objectives so from a safe distance although they appear to be up close. How will how would this be affecting life for those that live there? Uh, how has this changed life in Hawaii? Well, I'm afraid it has affected it quite permanently for um, for the people that were living in the area. We've seen some some homes and and some property uh, being taken down or surrounded by the lava, uh, and that is you know not not something that that we can um, change and that it will be easy to, to get over, unfortunately. Um, it is possible that those people will choose or will have to relocate permanently. And certainly the fact that we are having a recent, uh, a current eruption happening there means that even people whose property has not been directly affected may want to consider um, moving to an area of the island, uh, if possible, where there hasn't been um, recent activity. Uh, it's, it's very unfortunate. There are many communities living nearby volcanoes all over the world, and, and certainly in Hawaii, it's a it's a beautiful territory, but it does come with its own dangers, and, and it appears that in the case of this eruption, um, especially, that the danger has become very real. How uh, is this just a concern for the people who live in this area? What about other residents of the island or islands? Um, well, it's certainly only residents of the big island of Hawaii that should be concerned right now, and especially those living in the east and southeast of um, subdivisions of, of the island. Um, historically, for example, the northeast has been a, a quieter area where we haven't had um, any big eruptions in the, in the historical past. Um, certainly keep an eye out for, for air quality, but that is, is monitored and residents can get bulletins about that. But um, I do not see any um, immediate dangers to, to people who are not living in the East Cliff Zone area for, for the time being. But as I said, it's very important uh, to you know um, keep staying in the loop. The U.S. Geological Survey is fantastic about putting out uh, bulletins daily or even multiple times per day and keeping in touch with the population. You can get those either online or even by phone. And especially for people who live in the area, it is fundamental that they stay on top of these. And if anything changes, you know, um, that, that they follow the directions that they are given at that time uh, to remain safe. Uh, what about air travel or tourism? Has, it, has that been affected on the island at all? 
Uh, well, people, you know, go to the island and they hope to see the eruption. But right now, of course, they're they're not letting anyone uh, anyone close because the eruption is being, um, you know, quite violent right now, and and it wouldn't be safe to have a large number of of tourists over there. Uh, volcanoes do attract people who who want to see uh, eruptions and lava flows. Of course, uh, it is just not always possible to let them get as close as they would like for for safety reasons. Um, I do expect that you know after the, the eruption is over, Hawaii will be fresh in the mind of people, and and more people will want to to go and and visit the site of of the recent eruption. We see that you know every time that. Um, there's a large eruption basically everywhere in the world. Um, as far as air traffic, the, the situation is being monitored, um, and I I don't think there's any um, any immediate concerns um, because although the the height of of the plume that's developed from the uh, from the main crater appears quite high, it hasn't reached um, quite as much as to pose danger to, to air travel at this time. You talked about it expanding their territory. Is Hawaii getting bigger with all of this? Um, not with this particular eruption right now, because it's still happening inland, but uh, in the last 50 years, Hawaii has been getting bigger by about half a square kilometer, which might not seem like much, but hey, it's a half square kilometer that was not there until before, <laughs> because Lava always moves, you know, and uh, and gets into the ocean, and, and little by little it builds up and it expands the territory, and eventually that will become um, land that is available for, you know, agriculture or even or even property. Now you do not want to be too close to to the edge, of course, because those areas are usually quite unstable. Hmm. But as the coastline advances the line that is safe to leave behind also advances as well. So, yeah, Hawaii is getting a little bit bigger every time. That's good to know. Uh, Now, how concerned are scientists if this is erupting, if Kilauea is is erupting and there's, you know, what, a dozen fissures or 20 fissures, I guess, around that are are, uh, emitting lava, uh, are you worried that this spawns other activity or is it the opposite, this releases activity? Um, are you talking about other volcanoes? Yeah, are you or, worried that this is going to trigger or somehow uh, there'll be more activity? No, this this should not happen. Um, it is very, very rare uh, that one volcanic eruption triggers another one. Uh, I can only think of one case where it is possible that this happened, and that was um, in Indonesia, and only because the two volcanoes were very, very close to each other, and we think they share the same, um, or, or, or you know, they have very close um, magma chambers. Uh, in the case of Hawaii, I, uh, we are not worried about that. So, uh, how close can you get to uh, a fissure before your life's in danger? How uh, how far are they keeping people away from these? Oh, right now they're keeping people really far away. Um, you know, it's it is not simply not safe to, to go nearby um, a, a fissure eruption. Uh, geologists from the volcanologists from the USGS are getting quite up close, and they're taking samples, and and this is all you know very important so that we can we can monitor the eruption. But it's something that you do wearing all the right protections, and you do it 
quickly and you know with other people in your team who are monitoring the the situation and and you only do it when it's necessary so uh, for people who are not um geologists it is not safe at all because the eruption can change in an unpredictable fashion and um eruptive products can get out pretty far if if the eruption becomes stronger and 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 the explosions also become stronger and and higher up so do not try to get close to it basically Ariana Soldati has been with us, expert with the American Geophysical Union, currently pursuing her Ph.D. at the University of Missouri in Columbia, Missouri. Ariana, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.